Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I take a look back at the interviews of 2018. I'm always very grateful for the time and expertise given to me by the kind people who come on the programme. And also thank you for another year of listening in what was in fact the 20th year of Hong Kong Heritage with me as producer and presenter. The online podcast archive now goes back to 2011, so you can catch up on plenty of past programmes should you wish to do so. Well, the first programme of last year, like the first programme of this year, was with China analyst and author Mark O'Neill, a fund of historic information. This time last year, he talked about Silas Hardoon, a wealthy Jewish businessman and public figure who lived in Shanghai in the early 20th century. Here, Mark talks about how Mr. Hardoon liked to conduct business and also how he maintained contacts with all sides. Yeah, I think he was a very um, individualistic person. He ran his business on his own. He had an office just with himself in it. Apparently, he didn't have heating in the winter, so the Shanghai winter is pretty cold. And people found it hard to figure out what he was going to do next. And as I mentioned before, he didn't take part in the Jewish life as most of the Jewish people did. So he didn't have heating in the winter, what, for himself or because he was very stingy with his workers? Well, he had lots and lots of money. I mean, he could certainly afford it, but I I think it's just a peculiarity of his character. Perhaps he preferred to work, you know, in in, in this climate and perhaps he felt sharper because he wasn't softened by the heat so no he worked he worked on his own he was a member of both the international and the french councils that ran the international settlement and no one else was a member of both he was also a member of the shanghai club which was the main british private club so he had a lot of networks among the foreigners and could influence policy making decision making among them but he was also very active on chinese side He had relations with the warlords in and around Shanghai. He knew well uh, Sun Yat-sen and funded him before 1911. And when Sun arrived in China immediately after the revolution 1911, Hardun sent his monk, he had a monk who worked for him, to Wusung Port to meet him. And he brought him to his very large house in Shanghai and they had a celebration and Hardun had their other members of the Revolutionary Party. So he was right at the centre of the revolutionary movement. So he had links with all sides. He also met Puyi, the former emperor. So I think he was taking insurance on all sides, whatever the outcome. Whoever was going to win in China, he would have a friend in that side. So he was very clever in this respect. Mark O'Neill there, talking about businessman Silas Hardun. Last January, Michael Wright passed away at the age of 105 in London. Michael Wright was a former public works director here and was seen as the architect of Hong Kong's post-war public housing. He was born on the peak in 1912. Here are a couple of his childhood memories. It's a long And I remember my uncle, who's in one of these photographs, going off to war. It must have been about 1916, 1917. I remember seeing him off on a ship. He was in Hong Kong, Singapore, Royal Artillery, and he was going off to the Middle East. I remember waving to him on the ship 
as he's getting out of the harbour, and so he didn't survive the war. He was killed soon after he got to the Middle East. And this is my main memory of the war, and I was hearing about his death. Under the silvery moon Meet me tonight in dreamland Where love's sweet roses I had a very, very happy childhood in Hong Kong. We had a nice house, quite a big house in Coombe Road, which runs down from Magazine Gap. Well, naturally, I used to go to the peak school, and my brother and I, would, I had an older brother, we would have a chair to take us to the school. A sedan chair? Sedan chair. We'd share a sedan chair to go to school. Everybody loves a baby, that's why I'm in love with you. Pretty baby, pretty baby. And I'd like to be your sister, brother, dad, and mother too. Pretty baby, pretty baby. Won't you come and let me... And then the market coolie would come to the school with a couple of scooters and my brother and I would always freewheel from the school back home. It's all downhill from from the peak school to where we lived. It was a good school. I've still got one of the reports. There were only four in the class. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root. Michael Wright was stationed on Aplay Chow after the Japanese military invasion on December the 8th, 1941. After Hong Kong surrendered later that month, he was sent to Sham Shui Po as a prisoner of war. Here he describes life in the camp. Well, the important thing was to keep yourself occupied. You know, and it didn't matter what you did, as long as you did something. See, a few people, in the early days, quite a lot of people just gave up the ghosts and died. But the, what did you say that was just literally depression? Yes, I think, yes, and boredom, and they couldn't smoke. And the whole, the whole time in the prison camp, there was a black market in cigarettes. So I think that's a heavy drink, because it didn't worry them. They, 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 they did drink, and there was no attempt to get alcohol. But cigarettes, there was a continual trade with the Japanese sentries with cigarettes and anybody who got gold teeth, gold watch, gold anything, you could sell it to the sentries and sensible people would buy dried fish or some um, beans through the sentries but most of them just bought cigarettes. Did you ever smoke? I used to smoke, not, not heavily. I had quite a big architectural practice in the prison camp. People would get me to design a house for them. I mean, all for nothing. But I used to charge a cigarette per, per interview. So you designed their houses? Well, designed, I don't think they were ever built. Important was to just keep yourself occupied. The late Michael Wright there. In April, I met veteran writer Peter Moss, who was on a visit to Hong Kong and had long been on my list of desired people to interview. Peter is a wonderful raconteur who has had a very interesting life and fortunately has written about it. You can order his books online. On this programme, he was talking about the India Man, to use his words, a clapped-out old 1930s bus that ran from London to Calcutta. And Peter went on that trip in 1957. Well, it was the first ever overland <laughs> bus journey from London to Calcutta, and it was a vehicle 
So when you say it was a first overland, so was this something you could pay her a ticket for, or was it just Peter Moss doing another first? No, no, no. It was a, the first overland bus service called the India Man, run by a crazy Irishman called Paddy Garrow Fisher, who not only owned the company, owned the bus, but actually was its only driver. He would personally drive us all the way from London to Calcutta. What sort of bus? It was a clapped-out sort of London to Margate bus. What, Great. like a double-decker? or No, a single-decker. A sort of charabank of the 1930s era, which looked a poor companion to far superior vehicles in Victoria Coach Station that were heading for Ramsgate or Margate or Southend. So it was a former public bus? It was a former bus, a little... So where did you sleep? We had canvas tents stacked at the back with aluminium pegs that we were supposed to hammer into the desert. And how many of you travelled? There were 14 of us, or was it 16? 16, I think. Some of us were using it as cheap transportation because we wanted to get out east and if you remember in 1957 the Suez Canal was still closed in the aftermath of the of the war and you had to sail via the Cape Cape of Good Hope. So the cost of sea passages had increased substantially. The bus trip would cost me only £85. I had to find my own food and lodging en route, and I had skimped and saved enough to pay for the bus ticket and give myself an extra £45 for the journey. The journey, incidentally, by coincidence, took 45 days, so I spent a pound a day. Ah, but, I mean, that's just extraordinary. So you would have had... So off your troop, did he sort of say, right, well, we're leaving at 12 o'clock from... Yes, we assembled at Victoria Coach Station in the midst of these weekenders going off for their weekends at the local seaside resorts who cast curious eyes in our direction because the bus claimed on the, along the side that it was going to go from London to India, to Calcutta. And people would come over and say, is this true? Is this... Are you really going to India in this ridiculous old machine which is smaller than the bus in which we're going to to Ramsgate, you know. And who said yes, yes. Peter Moss there. The name of social worker Fermi Wong may be known to you through her work with Unison, the NGO she set up to assist members of Hong Kong's South Asian communities here. Fermi Wong fought for years to have an anti-racial discrimination law introduced. She's critical of the result, as it's by no means as stringent as other anti-discrimination laws we have here. Fermi Wong was born on the mainland and came here at the age of 11 with her siblings to join her father. Here she describes the journey to Hong Kong and how she started out here. We went to Chuanzhou City to stay overnight and then we take a very early coach. And then uh, it spent around 20 hours. And then in the middle, we just have some rest, you know, go to the toilet. But my memory, you know, was really, really bad experience because we keep vomiting because we were not used to traveling. And then very dirty. Everywhere it was really, really dirty, you know, the toilet. And also we spent one night at Guangzhou was really dirty, full of people. And then we were so hungry because we did not have enough money. And also my mother was afraid that maybe she need to keep the small money that prepare for the worst. And then, you know, we were so tired, so sleepy, so hungry, and everywhere was dirty. I just remember. And then we just also take another coach. 
and then arrive Lowu, then follow people to get through the custom. And because we were so young, my mother has to look after four of us. My elder sister, my second elder sister, myself and my brother. And then we left my younger sister at, in China. When we arrived Lowu, it was around 9 p.m. at night. And then we wait for my father to pick us up until 11. And then we did not see each other. We were so nervous and also so uh, scared. I was going to say, how often did you see your father? My father is only once per two years. So my father was in Hong Kong uh, around seven years. And then after that, we joined it. So I only saw my father two to three times. And then, you know, we did not meet my father maybe because at the time, no telephone. And then my mother just took a text and then went to the address that my father write to us before. And then when we arrived, simple call, simple call in Wong Dai Sin area, and it was midnight, and then my father came. It was really a scaring night and also very nervous, very stressed. Okay. And then at that time, because my father and my grandmother was living in the divided house in the rooftop, just like nowadays, I was so surprised. How can we sleep? Because it's only one room. And then they have the bed is two levels. My grandmother sleep at the lower level, and then my father sleep at the upper level. And then now we have five more people at the first night. And then we we try to manage how can we sleep all together in a very small room. Because what would you have been living? You'd had a two story yeah, house. Yeah. yeah, two stories, and also you know to to be seen as rich people <laughs> in the village. And also big house. And also because in village that, you know, it's for so spacing, right? So a lot of room and then you can run. But in Hong Kong, I was so certain. And also because in that building, it's an old building. And then uh, I think it's a seventh floor or eighth floor. And then we use the uh, staircase and then go up. And then it's a rooftop. And then if, I think it's illegal <laughs> structure, I, I believe nowadays. Inside is only one room, and then we share with two other families. But after two weeks, we were forced to move out because it's a two big family. And then we tried to borrow some money from my grandmother and then bought a wooden house at Diamond Hill. Fermi Wong there. On April the 1st, I headed to a very sunny Happy Valley sports ground to join members of the Sikh Temple community for Vizaki Sports Day, organized by Gurdev Singh. Hello, my name is Gurdev Singh. I'm in Hong Kong for 45 years. I was working in the Hong Kong government and I just retired two years ago. So I'm now doing the voluntary work for the Sikh temple in Hong Kong. And so this event today, what, what's the name of it here in Happy Valley? Uh, actually, this is a Visaki Sports Day. Visaki is the second month of the Indian calendar. So during this month, uh, Sikhism was uh, baptized. So in 1699, our 10th Guru Guru Govind Singh, he baptized the Sikhs. So on that day, we every year we celebrate this day. So in Hong Kong, we hold the Vasaki Sports Day. And that's one of several events, isn't it? Yeah, it's a several events. Today is the Sports Day. Yesterday, we took the, our holy book to Chiang Kuan No, and there was a celebration. There was over a thousand people attended that ceremony. Why Chiang Kuan No? Uh, normally on uh, different festivals, so the people they are living far away from the temple. Some are living in Tung Chong and some are living in Chiang Kuan or other new territories. So it's on a rotation. 
sometimes we go to Tungchong, sometimes we go to Lai Chikok, and sometimes we go to Cheongkwan So whenever they invite us, we go there. And today, I mean, you couldn't be blessed with better weather here at Happy Valley. I mean, everybody's, as long as everybody watches it with the suntan lotion, we've got about 27 degrees Celsius here, uh, lovely sunshine. And we've got uh, some of the boys out uh, practicing, and you have plenty of girls along also for the sports. Yeah, so the weather is a bit hot today, so it's a bit sunny. But it's lovely, it's not raining. <laughs> so for the sports day, it's okay. The people can have a lot of sweat here. So I hope they will enjoy the sports day today. Gerdev Singh there. The fun of being a one-man band with a small recorder is that it's a very flexible medium and very portable. In the middle of the year, I headed up to Tun Mun to have a look around Hong Kong's last intact dragon kiln at Castle Peak. It's a long tunnel of a pottery kiln in Tun Mun at 20 metres or so long. All the items, such as kitchen pots, utensils and figurines, would be carefully placed in the kiln and then the wood would be fired up and the heat would be pulled throughout the kiln. But the kiln is now under threat. The Hong Kong Dragon Kiln Concern Group want to save the kiln and turn it into an education centre of how pottery was fired here in the past. But a local abandoned school some 30 metres away that they were hoping to use as an education centre will now instead be turned into a 42-storey building. Just the pile driving alone from that could spell the end of the kiln. I joined Liz Lau, the vice chairperson of the concern group and sculptor Louis Lo Sai Kung at the kiln for a look inside. Louis first came to the kiln as a boy to have his early figurines fired. It was last fired in the mid-1980s. Actually, here is the front or the first opening for loading the kiln. And you see this way is where all the wood was loaded and fired. And the heat come all the way along from here up to the upper part of the kiln. Used to fire, I put it in the first chamber because it's the highest temperature. And where most of the beautiful glaze can be made. And also this chamber is an area where the reduction atmosphere was created. Reduction atmosphere helped to bring beautiful color glaze and up there is oxidation. You won't get the beautiful glaze. It's interesting because we're standing here or we're half crouching on a slope. So behind that grid there is where they would have stacked up the wood yes, and started the burn. One of the distinctive elements of a dragon kiln is, is actually it's all one chamber but they look at it in terms of zones. And because it's one chamber, that's why the heat from the bottom goes so quickly to the top and they can fire really quickly. There are other types of kilns that are also on a slope and they do have chambers. Those tend to take a lot longer because each chamber gets hot and then it passes its heat up to the next level. And so these ones, they, mm-hmm. they said they perfected to have these fired in about 12 to 14 hours, which is incredible because most kilns of this size will take two, three days of firing to get from zero degrees up to the 1300 and then for it to cool back down. So apart from the wood that's behind the grid behind me, this whole dragon kiln is one big firing chamber. Exactly. Yes. Wow. Yes, that would be intense. So you could imagine... I mean, we're looking at it, it's about, I don't know, 25 to 30 metres. Can you imagine? We can almost stand up in here. So it's almost a human's height. It's more than a human's width. So this chamber can house tens of thousands of of utensils. If you talk about pot Mm -hmm. lids and, and, you know, soup pots and wine jugs. And one firing is an intense thing because for them... It takes so much energy and materials and cost to do one firing that it's, you know, they actually pray to the kiln gods before they fire because they need to make sure it goes well. Otherwise, they, they could lose their business. Louis Lo Sai Kung and Liz Lau there. I hope that the kiln can be kept as a piece of living history 
as the last intact dragon kiln in Hong Kong. Sushma Rana is an old friend of mine in Hong Kong. We've known one another for 25 years. She's the daughter of a Gurkha major who served the British Army in Hong Kong for more than 30 years and is now retired in Kathmandu. Sushma was born and grew up in Hong Kong and speaks Cantonese, Nepalese and English. We had a walk around what we could call Little Nepal in Jordan, an area around Temple Street and Battery Street where you can find Nepalese street stalls, provision stores, restaurants, beauty salons and jewellers. So Sushma, on a rainy day, we've just come into a Nepalese provision shop. This is called Paspati Shop. And it's in Jordan? Near the Temple Street. So now we're just looking at the shops. They have all sorts of stuff, lots of grocery. Lots of and you food. can also get your air tickets here, did you say? Yeah, 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 you can. So we've got lots of dry goods along here? Yeah, we've got lots of dry goods. We have something here called tura. It's actually beaten rice. And what we used to do is my mum would give us tea, a proper cup of tea with milk and sugar. And what we do is we would put the jura the beaten rice into the tea and it will soak it up and we would eat it so that was like a good snack time or what we like tea time and there's a lot of indian products as well like rasgulla and they're just like indian sweets with thick syrup they have a lot of lentils different kind of lentils so you've got beans and peas and there's a lot of other like pressure cooker nepalese people love using pressure cooker because when you cook uh, the food just cooks a little bit faster and saves a lot of time Yes, because I was hearing from another Nepalese, and she works uh, as a beautician, that she likes having sweet potato, boiled sweet yes, potato for breakfast. Sweet, yes, but so she probably uses it as a pressure cooker as well. Yeah. Saves a lot of time and energy. You've been telling me, Sushma, that your mum is a really good cook. Um, can you tell me some of her recipes or the things that you like to eat of hers? Oh, I love the cell routine she made. They're like, we call them Nepalese donut because it's just easier to explain to other people what they are. <laughs> yeah, they're just made with rice flour, water, sugar or honey, or and we put in ghee. But I think it just like uh, varies from different family or, you know, like what your taste buds are. So it's a slight sort of like a sweet rice bread? A sweet fried, yes, yeah, fried bread, yeah, yeah. And how would you eat it? You can dip it in tea, it's good. We can just eat it on its own or you might have some like side dishes on the side. That's what you normally get when you go and visit family or relatives and if they make it, that's what you would have, like side dishes. And we've got lots of uh, mixed pickles and chutneys in front of us. Yes, I just bought a bottle of uh, mustard oil because I'm making pickles for my friends at the moment and I bought these are uh, black mustard seeds. Yeah, so these will go well as well in the pickle. Sushma Rana there. Battery Street and the streets around there in Jordan rate as among my favourite in Hong Kong. Last year, RTHK became 90 years old and to mark the anniversary, there were two five-part series on Hong Kong heritage looking at the history of broadcasting in Hong Kong from 1928 onwards. 
It wasn't a comprehensive history. You'd need more than 10 programmes for that. But it was a potted history with a host of commentators who'd worked or continue to work for the city's broadcast stations, either radio or television. It also gave me a chance to look through the RTHK archive. And I'd like to thank my colleague DJ Steve James for converting reel-to-reel tapes to digital formats for me. This is an early broadcaster at RTHK, what would have been known as ZBW or Radio Hong Kong, and that was Aileen Wood, who was one half of Singing Twin Sisters. Here to introduce her is the head of RTHK's English programme service, Hugh Chiverton. She was one of two sisters, twins, identical twins, so identical that their mother apparently couldn't even tell them apart, born in Australia, uh, who were singers. They were a singing pair, and they travelled to Europe, and then at the outbreak of the First World War, they travelled out to Southeast Asia and started doing tours and things in Southeast Asia. Doris and I, you see, in the old days, before talkies, uh, we were very well known for because we used to do all the singing for the silent pictures. For instance, uh, the flag lieutenant. We sang, you know, um, Land of Hope and Glory and uh, Smiling Through and all those pictures. Yes, we did a lot. And Diane, of course, uh, in Seventh Heaven. We sang that 16 times a day. <laughs> 16 times a day. There's a picture of them online in a book about rugby because she she and her sister were kind of rugby fans apparently and were sort of associated with the rugby team and followed the this is the be the um, new zealand rugby team and there's a photograph of them that's as early as 1905 1905 (laughs) groupies she was a rugby groupie in 1905 her and her sister she never married um she stuck with her sister the entire time she said to which was an artist, she wanted to ever thought of getting married. She said, "No, I couldn't possibly get married because my sister would have to come on the honeymoon uh, with me." <laughs> um, so she lived in Hong Kong uh, since since 1919. Of course, I think the most outstanding broadcasts which I can remember came over to us from Radio Hong Kong, from the BBC, were undoubtedly the the broadcast of the premier when he announced that war had started on September the third, and again that night when the King's message came to us. I think that was the most touching and wonderful, wonderful message. And his first thought seemed to be for the children of the world, because he knew that we faced such a great ordeal. Little did we know that we faced so many, many years of it. That was in 1939. In this grave hour, perhaps the most faithful in our history, I send to every household of my people, both at home and overseas, this message. Then the next broadcast, which I can always remember, because we always sat and listened in the greatest of silence. No one was allowed to speak in 1940 when his Christmas broadcast came again. Again, it was so marvellously touching. He, he, he was such a wonderful king. Aileen Wood there. So that's a bit of sound from the two five-part series marking RTHK's 90th anniversary. Long may it continue as a public broadcaster. Long-time Hong Kong music phenomenon, Colin Aitchison is band leader at Hong Kong's longest surviving music bar, Ned Kelly's Last Stand in Chimsa Choi. He also teaches kids how to play and to have fun with music. To finish up the programme for no reason at all, here's a snippet of Colin Aitchison and the students from the Hong Kong International Middle School in Taitam playing Jingle Bells 
on tin teapots. some of the interviews from 2018. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>